Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Hello, and welcome to episode 50 of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. This is another Community Voices uh, episode with Martine Weinstein, who has been a previous guest on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast as well. Uh, he was an early guest back episode eight. Martine is the director of the Open Earth Foundation, and we're collaborating with the Open Earth Foundation on some really exciting work, creating a new eco-credit class for marine conservation with the Cocos Island Marine Reserve in Costa Rica. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Martine is always a fountain of wisdom, um, and I look forward to having him back on. All right. Have a great episode. I know I did. All right. Uh, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration podcast, Martine. This is not the first time that I've had the pleasure of having you on the podcast, but it is the first time having you as sort of an official member of the Region Network community. And we get to dive a little bit into some of the amazing leadership that Open Earth Foundation has been taking on ocean conservation credits and decentralized identifiers, and and who knows what else might come up in the conversation. But I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about that fantastic work that's uh, starting to move now. Yeah, equally uh, excited, uh, Gregory, to to be here, connecting with you again in the in the podcast. I think the first time that we did a session was three or maybe four years ago. It's quite some time, and uh, just to be clear, I feel like. I've always, or we've always been part of an official region community. Totally. Uh, yeah. The, the, the ability <laughs> to consolidate it in like concrete work that's ongoing is, is a blessing. And a lot of the work that we've collaborated through the years through in the collabathon and things like that, I think have really shaped uh, a lot of the climate accounting vision that the, the, that now a lot of things are taking off. So I, I do want to share how amazing things amazing things can happen when we when we collaborate on these thought leadership uh, conversations. So look forward to more, and and of course we're super excited with the work that that we're doing on on oceans. Yeah, well, as a brief detour, just for you know, I'm sure we'll have some new listeners out there. I would encourage you all to go back and listen. I think we did two episodes together, and yeah, Martin was one of the earlier guests on on the podcast. And Martin, Open Earth Foundation, and even previous to Open Earth Foundation, with his role at, at Yale Open Climate, was leading these really uh, amazing convenings called Collabathons which region and the founders of Toucan and some of the founders of Klima and founders of, you know, many, many of us who have been doing a lot of work in this sort of blockchain for climate accounting world, participated in, contributed to, met each other, informed each other. And so there's a very rich soil of, deep, rich soil of, of collaboration here that's being drawn on for sure. Yeah, and now that's that the seeds have been planted and are growing. So I'd love it if you could give listeners a little bit of a rundown around this idea of an ocean conservation credit and who's involved in the work. Because um, there's, you know, I'm super excited about the team and the location in which these credits are being imagined using. And yeah, just the approach that you all are taking and where things are at. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and perhaps I can also continue just real quick uh, on the context you set up for, for audiences that um, maybe didn't join the, the last time. Our work really early on was around the importance of trust, accounting, and accountability standards in the climate world. And the collabathons, it almost feels like they they help seeded a lot of the burst, the positive burst that we see now. We would love to actually do one next year. So it'd be great for us to chat more because this it still needs a lot of the space needs a lot of work, particularly now with so many players involved and so much amazing web three uh things happening. And that, that was sort of a key key project that I was leading initially from the Yale Open Innovation Lab. And it's our flagship program at the Open Earth Foundation on really helping as a nonprofit bring a lot of key key players and standards and data sets to also support the UNFCCC Paris Agreement tracking process, um, but also for non, non-parties to the UNFCCC, so cities and, and companies. Now, in the process of doing that, the... The world of carbon credits is obviously extremely important and has, is growing so much um, as it pertains to carbon in terms of the Paris Agreement as well. So carbon markets need to be integrated into countries and inventories. And you know, if we're buying offsets, if we're creating projects, we need to ensure that that also rolls up to the broad goal of what we're, how we're doing as a society and a civilization vis-a-vis our temperature goals. So that pathway, and there's probably a whole podcast to be done sharing around that, but also leads to, if we go into the project s- structure, if we're conserving a forest, um, if we're deploying solar renewables in a community, there's always been, in the world of credits, co-benefits. And they've always often been structured as co-benefits. Like if I deploy solar in school, that co-benefit is that it can have internet and bring connectivity to the school. It has social impact. If we protect a forest, it has a co-benefit around biodiversity. But it's also very important for us to, in some sense, emancipate from just seeing the economic value through carbon and seeing the value of all those other co-benefits. And for some projects, they can be and often are more important than carbon. Oceans is a very important part of that. Um, and so the context for our work in oceans is if we think about our 2030 global goals, the most important one from climate is that we need to have our entire emissions by 2030, vis-a-vis, let's say, the beginning of the decade at least. But from a conservation standpoint, the the world to some extent with countries and the UN already agreeing on this and the science being somehow aligned to it, we need to conserve 30% of our land and 30% of our oceans. That's um, by, by 2030. For land, that plays two roles, right? We have national parks, we need more national parks, we need more conservation areas. And then land also has private uh, parks private reserves and one a private person could go and, and buy a piece of, of land and reforest it and conserve it and even go into a carbon credit market. In the case of oceans, the situation is a little bit different. You can't go and buy a piece of the ocean and do a project on it. Um, so countries tend to, uh, and it's not like they, and some are like marine-based national parks, um, and I'll talk a little bit about the pilot that we're doing in Costa Rica, uh, but often they fall into what's called the marine protected areas. 
very important areas because are defined often for a, a level of restriction all the way to no catch and no activity, meaning that as soon as you get into this area of the ocean, you can't fish, neither commercially nor for personal reasons, um, and you might have very limited uh, tourist activity that you could do with it. That, that's obviously, obviously to protect the area. So we think this is a very important uh, part, and uh, we don't have clear mechanisms to bring in financial tools to scale that level of conservation. And the work that Regent has been doing with dynamic and stackable eco-credit classes, uh, we think is actually perfect for this. And some other things that I want to share as well. Let me give just a quick context of what led to the inspiration for the program launch. Um, Craig, if that sounds good. Yeah, my, my wife, rock on. Yeah, my, my wife's family happens to be from Costa Rica. And so a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, I was invited to this expedition to this faraway island called Cocos Island. If you've seen Jurassic Park, is what inspires Isla Nublar. It's this island off the coast of Costa Rica. No one can go in. No one can live there other, other than the park rangers. But this island particularly is extremely uh, famous in the diving world because uh, Jacques Cousteau called it one of the most beautiful dive sites and islands in the world. It happens to be a total haven for hammerhead sharks. And it also is, is as, as an island, is the tip of an underwater mountain range that connects with Galapagos. So there is, there's this huge biodiversity, marine biodiversity highway that connects bays in Costa Rica with Cocos Island, with Galapagos, and then areas off the coast of Ecuador and Colombia. So you start seeing one, one as I was in this expedition with top scientists and NGOs and country officials, learning so much about this, um, how important to think holistic, holistically when we are conserving these areas. And so I spent 16 days diving there and realized how important uh, conserving these, these areas are and what, uh, and then connecting a lot with the National Park Rangers, seeing all the problems that countries have when they want to do that. To give you uh, just some quick context, the, the park already Cocos Island already has a, a, a no-catch marine protected area, but the park rangers were concerned that Costa Rica uh, wanted to expand, almost like three times grow this park because of the budget and the resources that the rangers need now to surveil such a large area of oceans. Now, if we are in land, there are a lot of tools that we can use to surveil uh, conservation of land. In the case of oceans, moving around the ocean is a lot more expensive. It's it's hard to establish uh, viewpoints. You only have this island and then just miles of open ocean to surveil. So um, I learned firsthand a lot of these dynamics of, of, of conserving um, ocean area. Um, and in the process, because of having worked on climate accounting and digital MRV and tokenization of carbon credits and the importance of integrating those with the intelligence of countries and their inventories, I saw a very big connection of what we've been learning in the climate space that for the ocean world was still not being developed. Um, and we got back from that trip feeling that it would be almost a dream come true for the Open Foundation to launch a program and, and work around this. Uh, but we thought it was a couple of years ahead. 
the last year, we had the blessing of working with some amazing digital artists that were part of a, a charitable NFT art auction called Carbon Drop that really helped support our the work that we're doing on climate. And we had the idea also to organize another NFT charitable event to support and launch the work on oceans. And we did that. This was around Miami Art Basel, the oceandrop.art. Everyone can check it out. Uh, we had like almost 25 artists. And at the same time, where we were having these conversations with 3Gen, uh, it clicked that there were so many common tools that could be applied for that. So not only was for us the Ocean Drop uh, an important piece to just get going in oceans, it was really the Region uh, Network grant that now supports us in the project that, that has helped us now set sail. Um, and I can start diving into that, uh, Greg, but I, I don't know if... Um, you want to pause for, for some other clarification that perhaps I missed? No, yeah, that's great context. I think, yeah, let's dive into what it looks like to be creating this sort of, uh, I mean, so what I've, both what I'm hearing you say and what I know from context is essentially there. there's a process now to define how we can support funding the, the maintenance essentially of this globally essential marine conservation zone through digital monitoring, reporting, verification, and the issuance of credits that represent the value that's being stewarded by this marine conservation zone around the Cocos Island, maybe potentially extending into a corridor to connect with the Galapagos Island at some point, um, and just sort of evolving from there. So yeah, I mean, let's let's dig in to, to how, how that's unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the way that we work is we have to think about what can we do in one area that because everything that we work is open source, and that's why we, we do such a great team with Region, is how does this replicate in other places in the world? How does how do we think about a reference architecture, a blueprint for how do we properly manage our ocean conservation areas and scale them and also address Often the pink elephant's room is how do we finance that, which is a strong thing for, for government. So, of course, marine protected areas have a lot of ecosystem services and other services, like, of course, tourist attraction. Costa Rica happens to be one of the most advanced country in this. They've been dealing with ecosystem service credits for decades now. Uh, the entire country is has a very strong culture to the value of biodiversity. It's not something that they purely see it for market reasons. It's intrinsic, and that's also very important. And so it's relatively familiar for them that oceans have ecosystem services. They've also pioneered how to bring in dividends from the tourist uh, world into conservation. And what we found is those necessarily don't scale that easy. So it's important to think about how to have conservation Add nature fund itself. So the first part, of course, is to monitor that, right? What are the ecosystem services that the Cocos Island Marine Protected Area currently has? What's the trajectory if we um, if we don't conserve it? Um, and particularly now the new ex newly expanded area, and what would be the trajectory with conservation? It's that delta that one can create an established additional credit. That credit needs to be able to have the capacity to slice and dice or to stack the different services. One uh, would be, of course, biodiversity and the value of biodiversity in the area. But there's also 
you know, practices that deal with the health of the area and uh, prevent bleaching of coral. So eutrophication is another part that's very important. There's a lot of nitrogen and agricultural runoff in the area. It creates these algal blooms. It produces these dead zones. So there's a lot of other dynamics that have be that need to be put in place. Our our program led by uh, Margot Filippi, uh, a, a doctor in uh, research uh, in in marine oceanography. She's currently working a, a lot on what are the different credits that need to be stacked. Um, carbon is one of them, uh, uh, of course, because the different uh, metrics that deal with the health of the area also affect primary productivity or photosynthetic activity, which deals with carbon capture. And then, of course, other things that are more social, like uh, being able to dive in a, in a pristine area has a value in and of itself. So one part is just the science of understanding what those proxies and metrics are and then how to gather the data. The other one is, of course, the broader methodology, a form of digital monitoring reporting and verification of that, uh, and how we can leverage satellites and, and sensors, uh, historical observations, um, so that monitoring this is not as costly. This is the same um, thing we've seen in the carbon world. It needs to be relatively cheap to be able to have third parties verify the claims, the ecosystem claims that are at hand. Um, and uh, and we're doing this alongside the region's eco-credit module of taking the abstract tools in some sense and catering for oceans so that we have something concrete that we can test for down the line uh, having uh, this directly on chain. Now, the second part of the discussion, which I think is quite interesting, is one is like the construction of the credit of the methodology, um, the mechanisms of bringing that metadata on chain or linking it to the credit. That's in some sense similar to what we know from the carbon credit world, but with some, some ecosystem, broader ecosystem um, sides. The second part is that this is not something that can show up in, a, in the region registry as a standard marketplace and someone can go in and straight up buy these credits because this is a marine protected area of the sovereign nation of Costa Rica. It's not a private project that someone's doing in Ecuador or in Brazil and can make a decision. Should we put it in Vera? Should we put it in Gold Standard? Should we put it in region? Um, this is more like the ecosystem services that go into a, let's say, a national park. So it's a totally different pathway. You can't take the, the carbon credits of a national park, put them on region registry and start selling them to whoever's a buyer. That would that would be uh, uh, absolutely terrible. It should be taken down right away uh, because of a question of additionality and, and also try to privatize something that's public land. So um, we think this is a great challenge for this project to address this. Why? Region, region registry is public. Why, it's not privatized. Yes, exactly. So, so what's the difference when private and public is like public land and, and the services of public land, how are they accounted? So what I mean by that is the public inventory. And this is what we, we want to really kind of hone in on. Let's say if, if, if we think about, let's take the climate world first. If we think about uh, carbon credits that could be in the region um, registry, let's say in the US, those are very relevant for US carbon credits, but the lion's share of US greenhouse gas emissions really right now live in the greenhouse gas inventory that the EPA compiles and sends over to UNFCCC, right? Now, when we look at inventories for land, 
the U.S. particularly does a relatively good job of accounting for its national parks and the national forests that have some form of carbon sinks. And those also live in the, let's say, land inventory. It's very important than the private inventories or the private projects that someone could say, let's take this piece of territory in Colorado and create a carbon credit project to conserving this land, that these talk to the national inventories. Otherwise, because the national territory inventory looks at the entire country naturally, they need to have some level of intelligence. Otherwise, you might have double counting. It's possible that the national inventory might say, oh, I see this, that Colorado has more sinks. I'm going to include it in the inventory. But it also shows up in a project that's in the region uh, registry. So I just want to make that 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 distinction. This is also very important in, in Brazil and the Amazon, right? Brazil has a, a Brazilian uh, Amazon inventory and the intelligence of how volunteer voluntary carbon market projects need to sync with that is very, very, very relevant. And, and I don't think we've seen concrete ways of doing that in a good way. So we're hoping that with and, region, we can do a first implementation. Well, yeah, which is which is super exciting. And I think the, the key there to unlocking sort of nested jurisdictional climate accounting, uh, you know, I think we're I think we're on our way to unlocking that. I, I sort of want to sort of zoom back and I mean, there's a couple of threads we could take in the conversation, but one of them that I'd love to get your your thinking on both for myself and for the audience is around the the concept of these new forms of crediting, monitoring the delta of what you know could happen if a program didn't exist, like the marine conservation program, and what happens when it does exist and it's been verified to be implemented successfully, right? Thereby bringing about you know, a reduce of nutrification runoff, stewardship of biodiversity, you know, maybe carbon outcomes as well, these sort of stacked ecological benefits that we're talking about. Who do you imagine is the primary market for these um, non-carbon benefits? Who Who's going to be financing this? Is this going to be sort of like global NGOs that aggregate um, and and are already this is like making their campaigns more efficient and making their their payment more targeted. Is this going to be nation states, sort of sovereign nation states that or like the UN that have global programs and budgets to achieve specific goals? You mentioned earlier, sort of the the twenty thirty goals, and um, you know, I'm just wanting to like really make it explicit for everybody who is making the market that these credits are going to serve. Uh, like World Bank program for results, some mix of all of these actors, you know, yeah, what's the, who makes this market? Yeah, great point. And uh, and the exciting thing is that it's still to be determined. And that's why I wanted to clarify the public sector versus private sector side. And when we talk about oceans, in this case, it's, it's it really like we could be successful at, at properly monitoring these ecosystem services, creating those credits, put them in the region registry, and kind of give this turnkey solution to the country of Costa Rica say, these are your credits within your inventory. And, and so what would a country do? It's slightly different in land, uh, but let's stick to, to oceans, which is strictly to the, to the government. They could say, hey, actually, we're going to open up the market. We're going to allow people to buy them 
And the claim that they can have is that they finance them. It doesn't mean that they can take those services and bring them back to the buyer's country. Uh, although that is something that we can discuss a little bit more because that is a, a second option. The second option is that they say, no, 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 we're not, we're definitely not going to open it up for anyone to go buy ecosystem services in this country, uh, but they might have bilateral relationships. So uh, let's fly out of Costa Rica and go to Europe. Europe with the 2030, 30% conservation target is soon probably going to roll out the need for every country to conserve 30% of their land. So if we think about a country like Luxembourg, how will Luxembourg conserve 30% of the land? It might have a hard time. Um, it might allow Luxembourg to say to the European Commission, uh, we are going to be responsible for ecosystem services in another country and have an agreement with Costa Rica that they finance those and that they could use them towards the EU credit. This is a hypothetical, uh, but it's something that, that as those conservation quotas and our conservation targets become more relevant, we're going to see very similar dynamics than we've seen in the carbon world. Um, so that's a bilateral relationship. The third one is country, and for that second one is more for a market reason. The, the third one could be uh, what currently finances conservation, which are international NGOs, local NGOs, and sovereign uh, nations. So Norway, for example, has put a lot of funds into forest conservation in Indonesia, uh, in Malaysia, and different places. Uh, they take a very proactive role. And more and more in that world of conservation finance, the financiers want to see outcome-based financing. So I'm, I'm putting a, a billion dollars to protect the Borneo forest as a, let's say, Norwegian sovereign fund. I want to know that 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 fund is actually producing concrete uh, outcomes, outcomes in terms of increased biodiversity, in terms of increased carbon capture. Um, and, and we see more and more the thoughts of mechanics of saying, if the project where we are financing the ecosystem services don't go up and, and either it's because the funds are not being used well, then we will stop funding it in some sense, something to give control to the conservation financier. More reason to say, hey, these credits essentially are kept in, the, in this case, the Costa Rican inventory, but they are shown to a conservation financier as proof, right? And say, here's my proof. Here's the credits. You can inspect them. You can look at the MRV methodology, and that can unlock funding. The concerns that I have around that model is that to scale them, you can have you know a couple of really big NGOs or a couple of sovereign funds that can support this, but it doesn't necessarily create a mechanism for in eternum conservation. Now, the fourth opportunity as well, and I'm glad that we're able to toss these ideas around and they don't seem so much as science fiction these days after what we've seen happen last year, is that, and we're I'm particularly very excited about this, uh, but it could take us to another discussion is, well, these are assets, environmental assets that the sovereign nation of Costa Rica has within their territory and in their central bank treasury, they have assets and, and cash and currency and some gold, and that's what supports the minting of the uh, colones. Uh, colon, colona, colonos is what the Costa Rican currency have. I would love to see at some point in the not so distant future countries to really go into the refi space and say, well, can we create a currency that's backed by the, the stability of our nature? 
And for that, a very important thing is that that digital MRV infrastructure that connects the asset has to be linked with the currency so that if the the state of your environment goes down, your currency goes down. Um, So those are things that I think would be very interesting to explore. And we're hoping that with this project, we can open up the whole umbrella of opportunities um, of what's possible. And, you know, similar to region, our thinking is build the infrastructure and also allow the conversations to then be had and, and, and systems to bootstrap from there. Um, that's a response of like who who builds the market. I think that's that just ideally shows that it's it's to be determined. But but these are now the opportunities that we have and where we, we might see it might uh, be going next. Um, Monitoring the services also requires, you know, probably that we have more conversation around the importance around models, particularly it pertains to oceans, because you might do great at protecting your area, but there might be agricultural runoff coming out of Nicaragua that happens to be coming in from a, you know, southward going current and brings that to this area and jeopardizes the area. How do we manage these things? Uh, Global circulation, ocean circulation models are very important. And uh, we're also looking at the integration of integrative assessment models to the eco-credit itself. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. I'm definitely, you know, the, the founding goal of Region Network has been the explicit linkage between that social construction of value for a currency and ecological health and, and making that explicit through these rigorous monitoring, reporting, and verification systems and and, and minting and sort of the, the feedback loop between value and ecological health is super exciting. So it's really, uh, I'm super keen to see how that goes. And I know multiple different, actually, surprisingly enough, multiple different nation state level conversations that are taking place about that, uh, in addition to all of the work that many of us have been doing in the, in the refi space as it emerges. I am curious just to go on a little side riff there. You know, I know you know um, know of Delton Chin's work, and um, right, you, you know Delton Chin, yeah, the global carbon his, reward, global carbon reward, his, silver silver gun hypothesis, and his really fantastic work that was the foundation of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's recent novel, The Ministry for the Future. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask, you know, he, so he has a, I think you'd really jive. If you haven't gone in a deep dive with uh, Delton, you should. He's been working on the architecture for a central bank backed global carbon reward system for a while. Um, I sort of feel like the refi movement is building this like grassroots emergent sort of like forcing function in which it's like, we'll just do it ourselves. We'll, we'll sort of like take control of the means of the, the financial and monetary infrastructure and we'll just we'll just do it ourselves. Meanwhile, there's like this other top down approach, which is like, hey, we should be working with, you know, the IMF and we should be working with the World Bank and we should be working with the, the you know, the central banks of the world to create quantitative strategic easing, um, easing essentially, um, coupled with. Uh, solid MRV around the provision of these public goods and base a new unit of account and have the central banks be, you know, essentially the buyers of last resort. So they create a price floor for that and it becomes a new currency. And sort of, I feel like, like with this dual action, it sort of becomes more and more and more and more likely 
because the central banks can pull from the innovation. Those of us who are doing open source sort of grassroots pilots, we're just doing this stuff. And, and vice versa, you know, the, the central banks legitimize the grassroots project by putting institutional energy and somehow they sort of meet in the middle <laughs> with a new approach yeah. to money. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, of course, I think that you need those two sides and that's, that's a basis of system transformation is that they have to sort of meet in the middle and, you know, from our side, from the open Foundation, we try to be, you know, uh, and I think region does that well too, something that can marry these two streams because it's also what allows these things to unlock. And obviously from both sides, there often is like, oh, you have to, you know, I don't, obviously from the bottom up, let's say uh, crypto solo stream tends to have resistance to the traditional structures. And, and that makes sense. And that's an important energy. But at the same time, and we can think about the importance of the sovereign nations and their currency, and yet think, wait, Shouldn't we be transcending the concept of sovereign nations and political boundaries? Shouldn't this take us more to like currency that are tied to buyer regions rather than political boundaries? I would agree with that as well. Um, like the currency for the Amazon should not be for Brazil. It's you know all everyone in the bio region, um, and then currencies of currencies um, so that you can you know stack them and. So, I mean, when you mentioned Delton, uh, it just reminds me of how interesting in hindsight the Collabathon's conversations were because we had a couple of sessions. Uh, this was like three years ago, uh, him talking about the global carbon reward. It seems like it was an initiative that attracted a lot of people that were working in this space and starting sharing those early ideas. And now we see a lot of the fruits. So I look forward to doing another one. And it might be that, you know, things like oceans or ecosystem services that, uh, it might make sense to think about collabathons that we could do around that because who knows what what that can help catalyze a year or two years from now. It's just that there's so many people doing things like this, and often we don't have the space for all of those to connect. And uh, I definitely, after your conversation, will do for a follow up with Delton. And obviously, these structures, from a theoretical standpoint, how this would work is key. But we also need that bottom up, let's just start building things to show that it's possible and that we also learn from those mistakes or 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 from those successes or both, right? Oh, this is great at showing this, but it needs better connectivity between the asset level and the currency level. Okay, great. Next iteration is something to go deeper into. Um, and I think that that's something that in the carbon space is already very much needed. How do you tie the value of a specific currency to the quality of the underlying assets in a, in a treasury? But those are all things that are exciting because we see them moving and they're not just theoretical. I mean, I, I, I hope that then we, we can also start doing these pilots with countries specifically to say, hey, this is possible. And if you haven't thought about this, let's create a pilot and let's see how that pilot would work. Uh, and then let them decide and then have them to some extent sort of collaborate with the supranationals. And that's that's another area that we like to help catalyze things is between the supranationals like World Bank and the and the sovereigns, bridging the innovations from the bottom-up world as you were describing. So yeah, that's why I said this is not just theoretical. It's exciting to be able to have these conversations with things that that we feel like will will be possible. 
it's also why I think that it's worth us really speeding up our our exercise in oceans because perhaps by the end of the year we have a well that's the goal is to have a fully established uh pilot running pilot and then we can we can speak to it with a lot more um uh, comfort right yeah it's well it's very exciting to start to think about how to create a the, the appropriate response to making visible these priceless resources resources isn't even the right word really <laughs> the priceless foundation of life that we can make visible and we can start to incorporate as a core part of how we make decisions as a society economic social cultural um decisions policy level decisions and you know so so I'd love if you take us a, a little bit deeper into what yours and maybe we could have Margot on actually that I should um I should reach out and maybe get her to come on as well to take us on a deep dive into yeah. sort of the marine science side of things but but I'd yes. love I'd love if you could give us a glimmer of you know what's the what are the components that that Open Earth Foundation is thinking about using to create an approach to monitoring and quantifying and verifying you know from the modeling perspective from the data collection perspective from the yeah. auditing perspective these new units of account this sort of new idea of uh ocean conservation crediting system yeah and uh i think that probably around may or june having Margot on would be amazing because we were going to be you know way deeper into into this and we have uh, weekly debriefs, and every time I learn something new, which just shows me how exciting this is, and we open up areas where are not defined. So it really just shows how we're breaking ground in so many areas. So to to name a few without a specific order, for example, um, I mentioned the importance around the model. Um, so being able to create a good uh, a good understanding of the project as 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 it evolves. And when we look at what are the existing models that we can use, for example, we are in a close collaboration with CSIRO, who have probably the most advanced models, considering that they've been working on this with the Great Barrier Reef. So CSIRO is the Australian scientific uh, primary organization, uh, and they have a model called eReefs, which has a lot of different components into the things that they're modeled. How do we computationally derive something that could be deployed for this region in Costa Rica? How do we marry that with data sets that could, that could be retrieved uh, remotely? So satellite imagery, what can we derive more from multi-spectral uh, satellites? So not just specifically imageries, uh, but looking at across spectrums. Another area that's super important is what are those credits that need to be stackable? One idea, for example, that Margot has is around a pH credit. So like pH is so important for oceans and it's such a proxy for health. So uh, can you create part of that credit that's attached to the pH level? How does that connect with the models of like information pH, of how- pH crediting that? sounds like a, a smart move because you could you could make a goal, right? You could make a goal and somehow you could even link even if you haven't met the goal, you can still be sort of like incentivizing moving towards it 
and using that to fund the sort of like non or multi-linear sort of emerge complex ways that that because that could link into carbon systems that could link into you know you could just like plug that into a number of different places yeah. yeah and of course in an area where you have pristine coral environments it's the ph that's really really uh calling the shots in many ways and also ph affects uh capacity to absorb carbon so there's there's a whole wormhole there um another one is of course in like leakage or or effects that are unintended which in the land it doesn't it's not that obvious like you could have a nitrogen runoff from a different another region and there could be you know like i said some currents that are bringing that in and you have uh, eutrophication in in the area how do you deal with that another that i think it's fascinating well there's the obvious one of like a biodiversity credit great what are the proxies that one uses for for uh, biodiversity in cocos one possibility would be the hammerhead sharks how do you track hammerhead sharks? We're in collaboration with an NGO that that does that. There's nuances, and you have to really have some robust science to be able to to derive that. And and, and hammerhead might might give a, a health quality around certain aspects, but no, not other aspects. In the case of cocos, for example, for different changes in the environment, tiger sharks start showing up in the region, and once the tiger sharks showed up the turtles were all gone basically so there's no turtles in cocos now you know there's all these these dynamics that that, that happen and, and ones need to probably define for proxies that are also easy to manage because it's not easy to track like uh marine biodiversity uh, the one that i also find is fascinating um i was working on it as well is uh equity so the amount of ecosystem services that are in an area like uh cocos island might be very different than an important area of desertification in the Atacama Desert, right? The amount of biology there, the amount of ecosystem services might not be as, as very large. How do you relate with, if you think about the value of these regions to other regions, is there some equity considerations to be had there? How do you, how do you liaise with that? Those are very interesting uh, topics that are have not been uh, defined. Because one thing is like a credit for one area, but the other thing is when you put that into a global framework, how do you navigate that? Yeah, um, totally. I mean, I've long been a proponent of expressing, creating a framework to express the ecological potential of any given place. I was thinking of it as I always think of it as the regenerative potential. So it's not you, right. You, you know, you sort of take a potential instead of a baseline, and you say, you know, you, and you get a group of people together, and you say, we have decided that you know, within this framework, within you know, obviously these sort of geomorphological and climatological thresholds, this is the ecological potential of this ocean zone or this landscape, and then. You're, you're monitoring and then minting assets depending on your ability to achieve that potential. So, so you're not, you don't have an absolute definition of biodiversity, right? Because the Amazon and the Atacama Desert are going to be completely different. You have a concept of the ecological potential of the bioregion, of the place that's, yeah. Yeah, that's that's great, uh, and 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 establishing that from a scientific basis would be a great framework for dealing with that equity 
in the climate space, there are those analogies like when a country says, oh, this is my nationally determined contribution to climate, there is an equity of like, well, what is your fair share of that? Uh, and also helps a little bit with triaging, like who should do more? So with the climate space, it's a very, very like hairy political space. But what you describe of like the regeneration potential really helps also of like triaging of like, it makes more sense to focus on the Amazon first or other places because their potential is so huge. Uh, we're lo- losing it at really fast pace. So it, it also might be linked to the kind of like the supply demand dynamics needed to bring in more attention to, to those credits. And, and that's a good example of something that we could um, explore for this. And, and another thing, of course, is that the modeling capabilities. So how do you simulate based on everything we know about this region, based on the data that we have available, what do we see that that potential? And um, and we've we've talked about this in the past. One of the areas of artificial intelligence that we're particularly excited as a um, research and innovation um, lab is active inferencing, which borrows a lot more from how the brain works, which creates a simulation environment of the world around it. And then every data point that the brain has either confirms or detracts from that simulation model, which is a very different way of doing AI than the traditional sort of like deep learning of making sense of all the data based on the data aggregation. So it requires creating a simulation of the environment. So we, we're we also looking at theoretical aspects that that could be used for saying, ah, this strategy might be best for park rangers or other things around what they do to meet that potential. Because at the end of the day, that's very important is how do we translate that into actions that we can take to achieve that regeneration potential that you were describing. So uh, these are some of the research um, pathways we're on. We're on week five of Oceans. So we got started not long ago and we started collaborating with, with Region. We had a great, great chat with Sam um, and, and deep into the documentation now. The second part, perhaps if uh, we have a couple of minutes, I can talk a bit about DIDs and verifiable credentials, which is another aspect that's less on the marine ecology side and it's more on the technical side. So we've also found a very good synergy there. We've had some really good discussion with ICSO uh, around this, that at Over Earth focused a lot on identity as a core part of an open digital infrastructure for the whole space, because we look at, for example, the relationship between projects and credits with national inventories and the responsibility of national inventories in the context of the Paris Agreement. So those are all very important identities that need to be part of a digital network, and that network needs to be interoperable. So when we look at a, a, a geographical polygon of a country, that country needs to have an identity within a network and the credits as well. And it can't all fit within a single sort of like identity system. So decentralized identifiers can play a very important role, and there's decentralized identifier frameworks in in a lot of the crypto environments, including uh, Cosmos. Um, And we've particularly looked a lot at the Hyperledger Indie DIDs framework, which comes of the Sovereign Foundation, because they focus a lot on the identity of businesses and countries. Um, So for example, we have uh, an active pilot collaboration with the government of British Columbia. They are actually a core maintainer of using DIDs for credentials, verifiable credentials, and how a government can query information of a company that the company deems that part of that information is requires privacy, but they need to disclose that. So that 
interaction between the public sector agent and the private sector agent can interact vis-a-vis with uh, with verifiable credentials. And so what we see already from the Cosmos and region side in, in DIDs is that the interchain identities are very much designed as DIDs for a range of assets and particularly optimized for connecting with NFTs. So that's actually a perfect match because they might not have all the frameworks for like who's the country, what's the schema that a cred- that a, of a credential that a country holds, but that we also see a lot of lack of understanding assets in the hyper hyperledger world. So what we see now is the opportunity of marrying, and and now we have more advanced W3C standards for DIDs and verifiable credentials that we can say, okay, well, when we look at Costa Rica as a country within the digital network, that's something that we can assign from a verifiable credential using Hyperledger Aries. But the credits, the stack credits from region coming out of the Cocos Island project, those are all distinct NFTs that follow the structure of the interchain identities, these IIDs. And Ixo has been working very, very much with that around Cosmos. So now we see a very interesting opportunity to show interoperability. And then obviously we have to do uh, uh, redundant implementations because we are uh, e- ecosystem agnostic at, at heart. So we have to say, okay, well, how does a region or Cosmos-based ID can be structured for an entity? Let's say a verifier, a nonprofit or a MRV verifier that will query that credential of the country or of the asset and other things maybe coming out of the Ethereum world, which also has some DID infrastructure. So we want to use these pilots to test these interconnectivities, these bridges, these sort of interoperability, but it's key because at the end of the day, all of these things need to talk to each other. And one of the key aspects of that is not necessarily the records that are on the blockchain or yes, to some extent, but the identities that are represented by those 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 records and how these identities are talking to each other. Uh, so that's something that we're exploring, particularly with this project. And it's a very good use case for that because you have that like public sector entity and you have this complex NFTs that have to be created uh, to represent these assets. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be very interesting and and important work as we evolve decentralized identity and verifiable credentialing um, for for all of this. It's it's pretty exciting. Well, um, I apologize. I think we have miles to go and and a lot more we could talk about, but I need to wrap it so that I can get into the other crazy things that are going on in, <laughs> here in Michigan. And I'm sure you have a bunch of stuff on your plate as well. Martin, as always, I'm super grateful to get a little bit of time with you and to get your, you know, just your take on everything. It's always super valuable. And um, let's do it again soon. I already reached out to Rebecca, who's our grants manager, to ping you all and see if I could set up a time to chat with Margot or maybe the two of you so we can do a deep dive maybe sometime in June or something just to, so things are a little bit more mature. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, keep up the great work and uh, hasta la regeneración siempre. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I, uh, I'll use that, that phrase and repeat it uh, for sure. Uh, and hopefully this gives a hint of the exciting work that we now uh, launched together and only five weeks in. I think there's a lot of excitement. I can't wait to share some progress uh, later on in, in June. So look forward to, to that point. And in the meantime, it's just such a pleasure to uh, collaborate very actively with the region team. Awesome.
All right. Be well, man. Gracias. Chao, chao. Chao.